The following KOPN podcast is made possible by the generous donations from listeners like you. Please consider a donation to listener-supported community radio, KOPN. You can donate securely online at kopn.org. Thank you. Hi, welcome to Food Sleuth Radio, where we help you think beyond your plate. I'm Melinda Hemmelgarn, a registered dietitian and investigative nutritionist on a mission to connect the dots between food, health, and agriculture and find food truth. And today I am honored to welcome back Ms. Ense Witherspoon. She is the executive director of the Children's Environmental Health Network, which is based in Washington, D.C. This is a national organization that works to protect children from environmental health hazards and promote a healthier environment in which they can thrive. With the Oregon Environmental Health Council, Ms. Witherspoon helped launch one of the first programs to reduce chemical exposures in daycares and preschools, the Eco-Healthy Child Care Program. Ms. Witherspoon is trained in public health and medical sciences and has decades of experience as a policy advocate, educator, and leader. She has served as an advisor to the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, Environmental Protection Agency, and the National Institutes of Health. She's a member of the Institute of Medicine's Environmental Health Sciences Roundtable. She serves on the board of the Pesticide Action Network of North America and is co-leader of the science and health arm of the Cancer-Free Economy Network. And she's the mother of four. Ms. Witherspoon holds a master's in public health from George Washington University and is an active member of the American Public Health Association. She is also featured in the recently published book titled A New War on Cancer, The Unlikely Heroes Revolutionizing Prevention. We are speaking today because October is Child Health Month, along with Children's Environmental Health Day, which is Thursday, October 12th. Welcome, Ense. Melinda, thank you so much. It's always a pleasure to be here and so appreciate your leadership and advocacy. Well, your work is so important on so many fronts. I am curious to know when you first became aware of and interested in the role that our environment plays in health. Yeah, thank you. Everyone's trajectory and story is so interesting. And more than not, you find a personal connection. For me, I mean, I've always had a strong connection to our environment, nature, getting outside. Thankfully, my parents and my family very much supported that. We were outside as much as we could be even in Buffalo, New York (laughs) in the winters that we had. But honestly, it was junior year of college when I started questioning my traditional medical school training route that I was on. I had always had a passion for protecting our most vulnerable. And in my case, I define that as children. But I started to ask, is the one-on-one healthcare the only way to provide that kind of support and connection? Because I think I was starting to recognize the childhood that I was afforded, I would say, was not that everyone could obtain. And many, many people were ill. And I started to see more and more of that, and especially young, young people, which fascinated me. So it was junior year in college, and I started stumbling around, and I fell into public health. And I've been in love ever since, recognizing that we can do all we can for our personal health and even that of our family, but we all live in communities. So if our community as a whole is sick, if our air obviously that we need to breathe and live is polluted, if the water that we need to sustain us is also tainted and contaminated, and the food supply that we rely on every day for nourishment, if all of those things are not in order, clearly, 
And that goes beyond the environments we live in, the built environment structures. We, we have a hard way to go. So it was that transition of having that awareness, really seeking out what I found to then be public health, and then having an environmental health course in grad school that solidified it for me. One course that finally I had that aha. It wasn't just this inner feeling anymore. It wasn't just my own observation. It was being validated by science and others lived experience that we are on a trajectory that we must turn around for the benefit of our health and well-being and our environment. You know, it's so interesting. It was one course that did it for me too in nutrition. And then as I've gotten older, I've realized that it is so much beyond the individual's food choices, assuming they even have a choice. But it's this broader environment in which our food is produced. And of course, the air we breathe and the water we drink. So I really appreciate this recognition that there's only so much the individual can do. And we really have to rely on our government and policies to protect us. And one of the statements that you had made in your interview with Christina Marusic in A New War on Cancer has to do with the idea that we think that products that are sold are automatically safe, that there's someone or some agency out there through our tax dollars, perhaps through our government that is protecting us. And that's not the case, is it? Unfortunately, no. And even I had to have that education and learning and as a mother of four. Most of us also have a heightened awareness of these issues as we become parents, as we become grandparents, as we care about the generations coming after us. And it is quite fascinating. The guidance that we give in nutrition, as you know, is read those product labels, be aware of what you're putting in your body. The same goes for those that are looking for consumer products, the type of cleaning agents we use in our homes, the type of foods that we're bringing into our homes, the type of laundry detergent and cosmetic supplies that we're using on our bodies on a regular basis, shampoos, lotions, those kind of things. All you have to do is read the label to see that there are some very, very harmful chemicals, in many cases, known carcinogens that are being placed into our consumer products on a regular basis. That is our reality. And I have to say, I get angry as a consumer, as a parent. Why should the pressure be on us to have to, with all our busy lives, read every product label so that we are not unknowingly bringing some harmful product into our family's lives? And yet, while many of us are out here working on policy development that would make it so that that would not be so easy for manufacturers to do, we are not there yet. Some of our states are doing quite well. They're definitely on trajectory for those type of protections where you will not allow certain chemicals to even enter the supply chain, which therefore means they're not even on our store shelves. But it is not standardized. It is certainly not a national policy yet to have those type of protections. So while we are actively working on those type of long-term provisions to reduce the burden on all of us, take the time to find cleaning lines, laundry lines, beauty supply lines that don't have and are clear in their labeling these type of known chemicals. Right. And it's interesting, just that message to read the ingredient label and question the safety of those ingredients. And I'll give you a personal example. There are some folks in my community that use lawn chemical services. And I've asked them, do you know what is being sprayed on your lawn? And most of them say, no. They just assume that what's being put down is safe. 
But there are so many questions about these chemicals. Do you find that people are asking those kinds of questions or is it new to them too to stop and say, wait a second, maybe this isn't safe? No, thank you for bringing that up. I mean, I've seen that in my own home where we get companies that come to our door and they're trying to get you to enroll in a program where they'll come and try to prevent the quote unquote pest. And of course, they all say they're non-toxic. So I'd like to just bring that term up. We see non-toxic on labels a lot on products and people are aware and are looking for those things. The sad part is, though, that there is no regulatory body, as you mentioned earlier, that is designed to look for who is accurate and who is not. So non-toxic, unfortunately, does not mean anything. You really do have to dig deeper and ask these questions. What we have seen, and I've been with the organization for 23 years, a few decades now, and there are people who have been even longer than me, there's definitely been an increased learning curve of all of these types of issues, people asking questions, not taking just for granted that what we are assumed to believe is true is actually happening. And when you dig just a little deeper and ask a company, a service provider, in this case, a pesticide applicant to explain what the chemicals are that they're using and what are the known health outcomes to those chemicals, at times, most of them do get stumped. Because they, of course, have not been trained on this. They're just trained to tell you it's non-toxic. It's the quote-unquote least toxic chemical. And I said, but you know, every pesticide is an agent that is created to kill a living organism. Full stop. So that's why we encourage integrated pest management. So in some rare cases, you could certainly be dealing with an infestation. That is serious. And in that case, people need to leave that home or that school or that childcare facility for X amount of time so that a company can go in and use the least toxic chemical to then rid that issue so you can restart. But the 95, 6% of the time, that is not the case. I went into a childcare facility one time, well, a few times in our Eco Healthy Childcare program, we sit down with the owners and facility managers and we talk about their practices and a good amount of them think that their public health best practice is paying for and calling in on a monthly basis, a pesticide company. So they are thinking that they haven't seen rodents and insects because of that. We're making the case by looking around and doing an assessment that actually it's because you're cleaning up the kitchen, you're getting rid of the food source, you're making sure there isn't standing water outside of the facility, which can also attract insects who then come in. There are things that they're doing that don't cost anything that are part of their regular behavior pattern. And then there's other facilities where they're not necessarily doing that and they're having some trouble. So we're trying to advise people on, before we jump to going and getting a pesticide company, let's back up and let's look at what are other steps that we can do that don't cost anything, but just us thinking a little differently about how we function in this facility or this home or this office space. And how many parents who have children in daycare even think to ask that question? I know when my own children were in daycare, I didn't think to ask that question. It didn't even cross my mind. So it's important, I think, for parents to have a list of things to ask their childcare providers to see, are these environments truly safe for their kids? That's the premise of our Eco Healthy Child Care program. I'm really proud of this program. It's been running for over something like 12 years now. And we have continued to fill a void that no other government agency, state agency, or other nonprofits are doing. Child care training and education on safety and injury prevention and other aspects, phenomenal. Well done. Unfortunately, even our child care professionals have acknowledged 
they have not and do not receive any type of guidance, education, or regular training on how to establish and maintain the healthiest indoor environment, which is where facilities usually are. Kids are spending most of their time indoors in those facilities. And you also are benefiting the workforce who are usually women of childbearing age and or at times pregnant while working in these facilities. So there's many co-benefits to us looking at what is happening in the air quality and the water quality, the type of consumer products that are allowed to be brought in, the types of foods that are offered in those facilities where children are spending anywhere from eight to 10 or more hours on any given day, depending on where they are in the country. So we definitely are seeing more parents as they're looking for quality, affordable, safe, accessible childcare, especially coming out of the heightened COVID pandemic. Environmental quality is increasingly becoming something that they're considering. I too, Melinda, did not know to ask these type of things for our first or second born. I only, because of the work that I'm doing, started to become more aware for our younger two. And so we have a checklist with this program. It's online. We can also send it in to anyone who requests it. It's also all of our materials are translated into Spanish. And so there's a checklist that can be brought to a childcare provider to encourage them to fill it out and see what out of their basic practices on a day-to-day basis could be considered for our endorsement, which is a two-year endorsement. You get technical assistance for free. We're here to answer any questions. We have a variety of resources and fact sheets, quick did you know social media posts that we put up periodically. And we also highlight providers that are doing amazing. We feel very good about complimenting those who are going above and beyond because right now this is all voluntary. It is not mandated in any state yet to think about lead prevention, air quality, not spraying pesticides in a childcare facility. Right. When something is discovered, I think people are at a loss to say, well, who's the authority that I should go to if I find something wrong? Who is the agency in charge here? We work with lots of federal agencies. We have great partnerships and there are definitely some gaps of coverage. We actually happen to have a meeting with the head of Head Start That government program supports all of the Early Head Start programs, which are serving the most marginalized children of our country. If we can make the case that we can do some work together here, even if it's on a trial demonstration basis, we know that we will show that when we take certain actions and do these low to no cost steps that we recommend through our program, all will benefit. And I would add there's even an economic benefit because there is a myth out there that purchasing, if you will, greener products or organic products all the time will always be more expensive. Thankfully, with supply and demand, and depending on where you are in the region, it's not always the case. We definitely see more green, less toxic or non-toxic, more natural ingredient type of products hitting the markets. And the other manufacturers see that. They see the gains that are happening. So that shift is starting to happen. We just need it to happen on a much increased basis. So adding in our federal agencies like Head Start, Office of Child Care and others to get on board and to work in partnership with us is really our end goal here. Mm -hmm. And say, let me take one break and remind our listeners that if you're just joining us, you're tuned into Food Sleuth Radio. We are speaking today with Ms. Ense Witherspoon. She is the executive director of the Children's Environmental Health Network. She is also one of the co-leaders of the science and health arm of the Cancer-Free Economy Network. We are talking today because October 12th is Children's Environmental Health Day. 
and October is Child Health Month. I want to talk about this whole issue of cost and economy. And that is whenever we start to think it's more expensive if we do it one way or another, we have to factor in the cost of cancer and the lifetime of trauma that not only the child faces, but the entire family. So preventing cancer is absolutely critical. And putting that focus on prevention in light of the cost of the diseases that follow when we aren't afforded a safe, clean environment have to be part of the conversation. Yes, so agree. And I also just, by the way, want to make sure that I acknowledge our incredible team. Hester Paul is the director of our National Eco-Healthy Child Care Program and Kathy Attar and Roxana Amaya Fuentes. So I just want to acknowledge that it's a whole team working to make these programs function. But yes, when it comes to the economics of this, this is one of the biggest criticisms I hear and the reasons that people are reserved and maybe considering or moving forward on some of our recommendations because people are very inundated. They're overwhelmed. Parents, childcare professionals, teachers, even policy leaders, they have a lot of things coming at them, a lot of demands, and they're trying to weed through the information that they have at the time that they have it to make their decisions. So I acknowledge that we have come a long way. And unfortunately, people are still informed with old information. What we are seeing from more health economists who are analyzing the markets, who are analyzing the growing of new business and innovation is that, for example, energy, our energy supplies are quickly changing to solar, wind power, many other energy efficient programs. And you may not think that by the rhetoric that you hear at times, but that is indeed true. When I would also look at consumer purchasing habits, people's yearning to look into things before just taking for granted what someone is saying is true, we have talked to many families and small business leaders who acknowledge that by not calling on a pesticide company, for example, anymore, like they used to, they're saving that money monthly. They're putting, investing that money back into their center, their small business or their home. And then they're able to do other things that they wanted to do on their wish list and they feel better. They also know that they're contributing to the long-term health and well-being of all in their care. And speaking on the cost of cancer, I would say cancer, any other long-term illness that families must suffer through, they're extremely serious. When it comes to cancer, we have a, with the Childhood Cancer Prevention Initiative that's also connected to the Cancer-Free Economy Network, a few years ago, we released a report, first of its kind, with sustainable business at the table, healthcare professionals, community leaders, justice leaders, public health, all saying together that the science and proof of evidence shows us children are being exposed. And unfortunately, every year we increase in childhood cancer rates. This has been happening steadily since 1975. We are causing this preventable harm by pesticide exposures, by air pollution from traffic vehicle emissions, and also from paints and solvents like women of childbearing age, pregnant women being exposed. So the information is there, and yet we are still allowing our children to be in harm's way. So I would make the case that the economic depletion of a family to going through cancer diagnosis, medical treatments, not to mention mental health trauma, loss of work, loss of school. And we do know that even childhood cancer survivors have a much harder road ahead of them. They have a harder time with sleeping. They have a harder time with focusing on school and college. And some don't even feel that they can handle higher education. 
because they're not able to focus. So they're also at higher risk for other forms of cancer, sadly, because of their cancer treatment. That's just one trajectory of one type of negative health outcome. We could go into 20 different other ones. So it makes complete sense for us to invest up front so the long-term benefits, not just to one family, but for hundreds and millions and larger communities would weigh out on the other end. Absolutely. So I was very much intrigued with the Cancer-Free Economy Network, and I've spent a lot of time on the website, which I will provide to our listeners. But I'm thrilled that you are in that science and health arm. What do you want our listeners to know about the Cancer-Free Economy Network? We are trying in the Cancer-Free Economy Network to elevate the fact that while we need and depend on medical advancements and cancer treatments, we all benefit from that in our families and loved ones. We also can and should be balancing our attention, money, capacity, and energy on preventing long-term illnesses like cancer. And we have many pathways for how to do that. There are many fantastic organizations out here working daily to elevate science that's available, people's actual lived experience that is continued to be placed into stories and cases to show others so that we don't reinvent the same unfortunate mistakes of our past so that we can actually prevent exposures to these pathways that I mentioned earlier that are causing harm to children, children who are not smoking, children who are not drinking, children who are not overweight and dealing with sedentary lifestyles, all of these high risk factors for certain forms of cancer and other long-term illness. And it's also not genetics because childhood cancer is increasing every year. That's not genetics. There's something else happening. So we are trying to balance out the discussion on cancer prevention. We're trying to make sure that that narrative in fact makes its way into the National Cancer Institute and other government agencies. We're working with Cancer Moonshot and the Biden administration to elevate their definition of prevention, also to include primary prevention, non-exposure in the first place. We're also working with sustainable business manufacturers and those that are really trying to look at their supply chains and their products and making sure that they add an ethical arm to their purchasing and their business so that they are not causing harm to human animals and the planet while also manufacturing their product. We're also working with healthcare professionals because we've talked, Melinda, about the fact that while groups like the Children's Environmental Health Network have been working for over 30 years to try to educate our healthcare professional population, most are still trained in treatment versus much higher upstream, helping families on well visits understand how they can be supportive in their lifestyle, in their schooling, in the places where they spend the majority of their time, their homes, their childcare, on preventing these type of things up front versus waiting for children to get sick. So we're trying through building power. We have a side of our work that's called building power. We are not coming in trying to discount all the incredible work that's been done at communities for years. Justice efforts, climate justice efforts, environmental justice efforts that have been working at the community level to raise awareness to exposure harms that are happening in communities. We're giving them a platform at a national level to raise their awareness, to partner together and be stronger, to elevate their message to media, and to hopefully also help them raise money so that they can do more of the important work that they're doing. On the health science node side, we are trying to make sure that the science that continues to come out, peer-reviewed science, continuing to validate that 
there are certain environmental exposures related to certain forms of cancer, breast cancer, bladder cancer, lung cancer. We could go on beyond childhood cancers. And yet we still are putting people in harm's way by not leaning on the science and creating standards and public health policies that are truly protective of all, including our most marginalized. Well, I love to see the word economy and to stress an awareness of full cost accounting. When we think something is cheap or easy or safe, to really look at the harms and the long-term costs of those. The website materials from the Cancer-Free Economy Network are excellent. I pulled down one just on chemicals and cancer that would be of interest to anyone. We don't have time to go into those today, but I will provide a link to that. The other thing I want to very quickly touch on and say is policy. What do you want to leave our listeners with, with regard to policies that protect all of us? So policy could be very daunting and overwhelming for folks, especially if you're not vetted in that field. I want to make the case that every single one of your listeners are an active, necessary ingredient to our collective future. You all have the opportunity to vote. We have a voter guide, for example, trying to elevate issues you might want to look at for any electoral process, local elections, presidential elections. So let's be informed because the people that we elect into offices are then the ones establishing our policies. So if we don't do our groundwork in making sure that we put forth candidates from our communities, our states, and our national level, who we believe embody and are listening to where we believe this country should be going, especially when it comes to preventing harm and elevating public health and justice, then I would make the case that it starts with each and every one of our votes, number one. When it comes to state policy and national policy, there are many groups of us, Children's Environmental Health Network, Cancer Free Economy Network, there's many of us out here working to engage with policy leaders, committees in Congress and at state levels, testifying at hearings, but we certainly can use as many voices as possible. There are opportunities to sign on to a sign-on letter that then goes to a legislator making the case to support policies that are protecting all of us. Some of us are looking for community voices to come and share your individual stories. What are you seeing in your environments? Because most of us know when cancer diagnosis starts to happen rapidly throughout our communities, we know that that's not a normal thing. So something has happened. It's so important to hear from not just advocates and even parents like myself. It's so vital to hear from each and every one of you. I can also appreciate not everyone may have that time. So I would encourage aligning with organizations like ourselves or any other advocacy organization that you're comfortable with so that they can add you to their communication list. And when there are times when you can weigh in on your voice, quickly sign something, be a part of an email exchange, maybe even getting invited if your time permits to adding your voice at a physical meeting or a school board meeting or whatever the case may be. We are in this all together and policy development does not happen in a vacuum. It must be through the contribution of our public or we are going to get the same type of policies that we've been getting, which are missing the most vulnerable. They're missing prevention. And I would say, don't be shy about policy. Just find whatever is comfortable for you and how you can weigh in for you and your family. Thank you. And say, we've got to close, but I want to thank our listeners for joining us. Remind everyone that Food Sleuth Radio is produced by Dan Hemmelgarn for KOPN in Columbia, Missouri. 
Most of all, I want to thank my guest, Ms. Nse Witherspoon, Executive Director of the Children's Environmental Health Network, co-leader of the Science and Health Arm of the Cancer-Free Economy Network, and friendly reminder, October 12th is Children's Environmental Health Day. October is Child Health Month, although we will agree that every month should be Child Health Month. Thank you so much for carving out time for me today, Nse. Thank you so much, Melinda. Best to you. 